Hi everyone and welcome to episode 29 of Infraction. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's case is a story of bravery, courage and just unbelievable victim strength. I had another case lined up for today's episode, uh, but then we received a message on Facebook from Christina Frizzell, a fantastic name by the way, and Christina sent us a link to a case that has honestly blown my mind, so I got lost in a rabbit hole reading up on it and I thought I would do it for this week's case. So this case is slightly different in that the victim of this case has never been named. I didn't want to spend the entire episode referring to her as the victim or the unnamed victim um, because although she was the victim of a heinous crime, she is so much more than that. Um, She's a fighter and a blooming brave one at that. So I reached out on a podcast group and asked how I could reference her in a respectful way. So thank you everyone so much who did respond um, and people who commented saying they're enjoying the podcast. It's really, really great to hear. Um, But out of respect for the lady in this case, I will refer to her as Jane. Um, So this is not her real name, but it's the name that we will use in this episode. Alrighty, so we're going to start today's episode on March 13th, 2009, where Jane stood in court and read from her victim impact statement. She read, Where does one begin to describe the impact of a rape and attempted murder by a total stranger in your own home? It has been five years since the night I awoke to a stranger in my bedroom. But to me and my loved ones, the horror is constantly hiding in the shadows of our souls. This horrendous night Jane is talking about, as she said, happened five years earlier, on the 17th of February 2004. However, the infatuation and plan to carry out this attack started three days earlier, on February the 14th, Valentine's Day. Jane, in her condo in Edmonton, a city in Alberta, Canada, noticed a note slipped under her front door. It was a Valentine's card. Confused, she opened it, and it read, Hey, hot neighbour, happy Valentine's Day. I wrote you this note to pretty much say hi because you're so hot and I wanted to flirt with a hot babe like you. My name is Damon, I'm 21 years old, I'm cute, lovable, and I'm good in bed. He he he. Just joking. Write me back with a smile because I made you blush. P.S. Your next door neighbour, Damon. Probably feeling the way we are all feeling right now, a bit creeped out and a bit cringe, Jane tossed the note to the side and carried on her week without giving 21-year-old Damon another thought. Did she know Damon? Had she met him before or was this like a new neighbour who'd moved in? Uh, No, she didn't know who Damon was at all. Um, And she knew that her neighbours were younger, so it's really hard to tell the ages in this because obviously her identity has been um, hidden. But I think she is in her early 30s. So this Damon has said in his note that he's 21 years old. So it's already someone who's about 10 years younger than her. Um, and um, yeah, as far as I can tell, she had no idea who he was. And it kind of comes clear later on why she might not have known him. Okay. On the night of February 16th, 2004, Jane got into bed, tired from the long Monday grind at work that day had been. Frustratingly, her neighbours had chosen that night to have a party and they were being super rowdy, playing music incredibly loudly. This noise and incessant music continued until about 4.30 in the morning on the 17th of February. Eventually, she managed to doze off despite the racket. However, shortly after falling to sleep, she woke abruptly and at the foot of her bed, a man brandishing a meat cleaver and another knife stood staring at her. Oh God, this is literally my worst fear. Yeah, this is honestly my biggest nightmare. Every time when I wake up in the middle of the night, I look at the end of the bed, Mm. just in case. Um, So he came to her side, put a knife against her throat and spoke the words, I'm here to rape you and I'm here to kill you. Jane lay in complete shock. She said she could not believe this was happening to her in her own bedroom. 
She lived in a condo, which for those of you who don't know, is sort of like an apartment, but you own the area outright rather than owning the lease, um, as is common sort of with flats and apartments. But as far as I can tell, she wasn't on the ground floor. It did seem pretty secure, and it seemed as if it would have been very difficult for someone to have broken in. The man, still holding a knife to her neck, spoke to her and told her that he would rape her and kill her, and that if he didn't kill her, his friends, with whom he'd made a bet, would kill him. The amount for which he waged in this bet is reported in two very different ways. Some reports state that he told Jane the bet was for $10,000, but other reports say that the bet was for $500. I don't think it matters too much, to be honest. There is obviously no price that you could put on what he does next that would make it justified or okay, Um, but I thought I would just point out that the reports do vary on this figure. So is there any evidence that he actually did make a bet? Because A, this seems a horrific thing for anyone to bet on, Um, But also, attacks of these nature, you always think of really as being quite personal, deviant sexual fantasies, as opposed to just, oh, my mate's dared me, I won't do this, so I am going to go through with it. Do you know what I mean? Like, So that Mm. there was proof that this was in fact a bet. Yeah, it comes out later that it was definitely a bet, and he admits that it was a bet, yeah. Christ. Mm. So... In this situation, Jane's lying in bed. There is a man who she cannot identify, stood with a knife to her neck. I think normally in this situation, the usual response most people would have would be to scream, uh, try and run. Um, I think that would be the natural impulsive reaction. However, threatened at knife point with rape and murder, Jane didn't scream or panic. Instead, she attempted to implement tactics that she had learnt at work. She had worked with troubled youths in the past and she knew that oftentimes reasoning and persuasion could work to defuse violent situations and this is what she attempted. She started speaking to the man, trying to reason with him. At this point, she remembered the note that had been posted through her door a few days before and asked him if he was Damon, the man who had written her the Valentine's card. He seemed to react to this slightly, so she thought it might have been him. She kept using this name Damon when she spoke to him, and she used other techniques to make him think that raping her would be a bad idea. She told him she had a sexually transmitted disease, and therefore he shouldn't rape her as it could harm him. She said that she understood the predicament he was in with his friends, and the bet that they'd put on, and she said that she would be able to keep him safe from them. She told him she would take him to Vancouver, and that she could give him enough money to keep him out of harm's way. For a short period of time, this persuasion did work. The man even let her get out of bed and get dressed. As she got changed, she edged backwards towards the window, hoping that he would follow her so that she could get a glimpse of what he looked like using the slither of light that was coming through the window. Wow. Just as it seemed that she was going to be able to leave, the man changed his mind and launched himself at her. He raped her and hit her and smashed her head into the wardrobe door. At this point, Jane felt sure she would not survive this and that he was going to keep his word and kill her. He began hitting her in the head with a blunt object, not relenting at all until Jane stopped moving and stopped reacting to the blows of force. He stared at Jane's still lifeless body for a while, and then he got up and left. Hearing him walk away, Jane let out a long breath and opened her bloody, sore eyes. She had somehow had the incredible strength to play dead whilst the man had been pounding her skull. She crawled to her home phone and dialed 911 and begged the responder to help her. Heartbreakingly, just a few seconds into her 911 call, her attacker came back. Oh my god. This time, Jane fought back. She raised her hands to protect her head from his fists and smacked out at him even when he started using his knife. 
Her hands and wrists were sliced as she thrashed out at him, and she tucked her chin into her chest to protect her neck from being cut. She stayed in that position despite the cuts that she endured to the top of her head and her skull. When it was clear to her that her attacker would not relent, she once again pretended to be dead. What's incredible was that this time, to really convincing that she was dead, she lay staring up at him with her eyes open, holding her breath. She wasn't curled up with her eyes closed, she was laying on her back staring up at him. I cannot even imagine the incredible mental and physical strength it would take to play dead, staring at someone, watching him whilst you're being stabbed and slashed with a knife. It's absolutely phenomenal that she could compel her body to not react or flinch or try to protect herself, you know? No, that is unbelievable and not to if nothing else just have such a sheer look of terror on your face that would give away that you were still feeling some kind of emotion Mm -hmm. it's unbelievable and so when he noticed that she had once again stopped moving he stopped lashing out with his knife and he peered down at her he looked at her cold lifeless stare and her still body and satisfied that she was finally dead he left again Jane grabbed her phone and dialed 911 again, although this time it was incredibly painful and challenging because her fingers and hands had been cut so badly. She could hardly move them to dial the three numbers or even hold the phone. When the operator answered, Jane screamed, help me, help me please. The operator asked her what was going on and she said, he raped me, I'm all cut up, my neck is cut, my face is cut, I'm lying bleeding on the floor, please send somebody. At this point in the call, Jane's screams became more frantic and she said, he's coming back and he'll kill me. He'll cut my fingers off. Please help me. The man, who had let himself back into her condo by using the door that led out onto the balcony, grabbed the phone off of Jane and hung it up. Jane had been scrambling and crawling her way to the front door to get out, but it was locked. This made her think that her attacker had definitely managed to get in by breaking through her balcony door. Why did he keep leaving and going? Was it because that every time he left he could hear her making a 911 call and therefore realised she was in fact alive? It's really hard to tell but I can imagine that that must have been what it was. Um, because she was on, because it was like, like an apartment, I think that he was just outside waiting on the balcony so he wasn't, you know, going out into the hallway, going back into his apartment if, you know, he was the guy who lived next door. Um, so, yeah, I think that it was just that he could hear her moving and he could hear her calling 911 and that is why he kept coming back. Oh. Um, so after he'd come back and hung up the phone, the 911 responder called back her house phone. This time the man answered it and he told the responder that the previous calls had been accidents. He said they had been his niece messing around and then he said, OK, bye and hung up. Thankfully, before the man had a chance to hang up, Jane had realised that he was on the phone to the police and had started screaming in the background. This is something the 911 responder heard and they immediately dispatched the police. Finally. Yeah, I know. So what happened next is quite unclear, although almost every report does say that he attacked Jane again for the third time. Um, However, it seems that he either left or she managed to escape, as when the police arrived, Jane was sheltering in her neighbour's apartment, having managed to crawl out the front door and into the communal hallway. In the ambulance on the way to the hospital, Jane insisted on giving the police a statement of what had happened because she truly thought she was going to die. She told the police that she thought the man had been her neighbour... She said she thought his name was Damon because of the Valentine's Day card that had been posted through her door. She said she didn't know much about him at all, but that she had managed to see his face and she felt certain she would be able to identify him. In hospital, Jane had to listen to the horrific sounds of the doctor stapling her skull back together. 
She had to undergo numerous surgeries to fix her hands and stitch up all her knife wounds. The knife wounds to her hands had severed the tendons in her fingers and the surgery and recovery was long and painful. So when I was researching this, I was thinking about something that I saw a few weeks ago. It was one of those like police caught on camera things. Do you know what I mean? Like the programs where they follow police during their shifts. Mm, Yeah. So on one of those, one of the officers was attacked with a machete. It was honestly awful, but he sustained really similar hand injuries to to the ones that Jane did here. Um, And he said it took almost a full year to recover from those injuries because every time he moved his hands or he clenched a fist or anything or just stretched his fingers, he would snap all the tendons again in his hands. So this is truly an awful and debilitating and really invasive injury that Jane suffered here is awful. So whilst Jane was in hospital having life-saving operation after life-saving operation, the police were working hard to find her neighbour Damon. They hit a wall almost instantly when it turned out that Damon didn't exist. Then, someone remembered the Valentine's Day note and tested it for fingerprints. One lone print that didn't match Jane's was found on it, and the police identified that this belonged to a boy just out of his teens named Ryan Huppy. They took a photo of Ryan, along with some other photos, to the hospital to ask Jane if she could identify her attacker. Out of the lineup, she picked Ryan's photo. Oh my god, I don't know why I was really expecting that um, the Valentine's note would be completely coincidental. Like, I know it was very strange, but I think it's such a silly thing to send a note and then three days later commit such a horrific attack. Do you know what I mean? So I just wasn't expecting them to actually be related. Yeah, no, it definitely does seem that he'd become completely infatuated with her, um, but had never spoken to her and didn't know her. But yeah, he'd been really infatuated with her and that's why he sent this note. And um, I mean, it hasn't been reported anywhere, but I did think whilst I was researching this, whether or not he... um, was kind of motivated to attack her. Motivated is not the right word, but you know what I mean? Maybe in his head, he justified the attack on her because she hadn't responded to the note, maybe. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like if she's so, if he's so infatuated with her, it could really, he could have felt really snubbed by it. And maybe that's why he was so angry at her. Yeah, sort of like ignited some like feelings of rejection and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, after Jane managed to ID Ryan, the police put out an arrest warrant for Ryan Huppy and his face appeared on the news. They were out searching for him, knocking on doors and such, but they needn't have bothered, as Ryan's mother, having seen an image of her son on the news, marched him down to the nearest police station and handed him in. Yes. <laughs> um, so there's very little information on what happened after Ryan's arrest and before the trial started. Uh, it does appear that he was held in custody for the five years, though, that amounted after the attack and before the trial began. Five years? Yeah, so in terms of why it took so long, I have no real answer i mean imagine a large part of it was to do with the amount of rehabilitation jane would have needed you know like post-surgery um and also because ryan was claiming that he wasn't criminally responsible for the attack so i'm sure he had to undergo a lot of um counseling and probably um what's the word like like psychiatrist reports and that kind of thing um and also i read somewhere that he went through four lawyers before he he even got to trial so i imagine that would have longed out the process a lot yeah, and actually, I don't know, I just, a lot of these things do take a lot longer than we imagine that they do, I think, just because, I don't know, our ideas and stuff come from TV, movies yeah. and things. Yeah, whereas actually a lot of the time I think it does take years, but yeah, five just sounds particularly long. But Yeah, I think so too, especially when it does seem kind of like a shut and, like shut and dry case, do you know what I mean? Is that the right phrase? Cut and dry, cut and dry case. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, I think because it does seem like that, it just, it does seem like it has taken quite a long time. But yeah, I imagine that time, to be honest, I'm not saying it would have gone fast for Jane or her family. Um, but I do imagine that actually with all the rehabilitation and stuff she had to go through, um, it probably didn't seem as long as it kind of does sound when it's just written down like that, like five years. Yeah, maybe. So there was a trial in the interim. Uh, so the time before Ryan went to trial, uh, either one or two of Ryan Happy's friends who had been at the party um, that they'd all been at. Um, sorry, the reports on this are basically really vague. I can't tell how many people face charges, uh, but there was a trial um, and it was revealed that one of the men had come out into the hallway when Jane had escaped and he'd shouted at Ryan to run when he'd heard the police sirens. As we know, Jane then went into another neighbour's home for shelter, but at this trial, it was revealed that Ryan's friend attempted to wipe away Jane's blood splatters off the walls in the hallway. Adding to this, when the police asked him to give a description of the attacker, he deliberately misled them and described someone far different to Ryan's appearance. So this man and friend of Ryan's pled guilty to two counts of obstructing justice and he was sentenced to 51 months in jail in 2005. Sorry, rewind a little bit there. So... There was someone effectively there with Ryan. Did you say they were at a party or was that where the bet was made? Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Sorry. That's terrible explaining on my part. <laughs> so the so if you can remember, Jane like basically was kept up until 4.30 in the morning because her neighbours were having a party. Oh, okay. So they were at so, that party. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've explained this really badly. <laughs> They were at that party. Ryan Huppy was the guy who'd written the note. Uh, he'd called himself Damon. So when he said, I'm your hot neighbor, Damon, he was talking about himself, Ryan was. So they'd been at the party. Um, and then it comes out later how he got into her apartment. Um, but yeah. So what you needed to say was that Ryan or Damon was in fact a neighbor, but he was called Ryan, not Damon. <laughs> That's the key bit of data. <laughs> <laughs> now you said it for me, so I don't need to. <laughs> Yeah, okay, sorry, that was really poor from my from my explaining. Um, okay, so um but but in answer to your question, the friend wasn't with um him at all during the attack or the rape or any of that. It was just afterwards he basically had um caused obstruction of justice because he deliberately misled the police about um the identity of the attacker who he obviously knew was ryan mm. he described someone completely different and also obviously he tried to wipe away evidence and things like that so that's why he was sentenced to 51 months he wasn't actually involved no, yeah. um in that part of the attack so four years after his trial in january 2009 the trial of ryan happy started and this takes us back to where we started this episode with Jane's powerful statement in court that asked, where does one begin to describe the impact of a rape and attempted murder by a total stranger in your own home? Ryan Huppy faced charges for five offences. These were for attempted murder, aggravated sexual assault, sexual assault with a weapon, unlawful confinement and breaking and entering with the attempt to commit aggravated sexual assault. Ryan didn't deny any of these claims. He didn't even deny that he was there. What he did deny, however, was that he was criminally responsible for these crimes. His defence lawyer said that she didn't think her client belonged in prison. She felt he should remain in a hospital for, quote, his part in the attack. She blamed his diminished mental state of him having suffered fetal alcohol syndrome and disassociation for his reason for committing this crime. Throughout the four-week trial, the court heard how Ryan Huppy had expressed to his friends that he had a crush on his neighbour, the night of the attack, he had a house party with loads of friends and reports and statements from friends say that Ryan was drinking and taking drugs. In his intoxicated haze, he said to one of his friends, I bet you $500 I can rape and kill the lady next door. 
And that is how it started. Okay, so I did actually explain it, just not early enough for you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he took a butcher's knife and a meat cleaver and went outside onto his balcony. He stretched his front leg out and crossed over onto her balcony. What ensued next is what we just heard. And at the trial, it was revealed that the rape and the knife attack lasted at least two hours. Oh my God, that's a lot longer than I thought. Yeah, I did too. When I heard that, when I saw that in the um, one of the trial reports, I was really shocked because that is just an insane amount of time. Imagine how much blood she would have lost. Imagine how just drained she would have been um, in terms of like her energy levels and stuff. Like It would have just been horrific. Mm. So at the trial, images of Jane's injuries were shown to the court. They were also shown images of the blood-soaked carpet and walls in Jane's condo and the cordless phone that she had used to dial 911. This was also covered in blood. Additional images shown to the court included photos of Ryan Huppy's hands that were taken just after he was arrested. In these photos, his hands were heavily bruised. With regards to his arrest, his mother testified on the stand that he had come home early that morning and confessed to her that he thought he had done something wrong. This, she says, is why she had immediately taken him to the police station where she'd seen his face on the news. Unfortunately for Ryan, his mother's statement was in direct contrast to what he was saying in that he'd blacked out and couldn't remember anything from the night because he had taken a cocktail of different drugs. That really is his defence the entire time. It's hard to tell if he claimed disassociative identity disorder, so that's what's formally called multiple personality disorder, and we've spoken about it slightly, I think, in one of our earlier cases. Um, He definitely claims that he was disassociated from his body that night, but it's unclear really where the argument went or what he meant by that. Some reports have picked it up and referenced DID, um, but I can't really tell actually if that is his argument at all. Um, I think from a personal perspective, the fact that he attacked her three times and the fact he told the 911 responder that the phone call had been an accident and it had been his niece messing around, that tells me that he was very aware of what he was doing and that this wasn't some disassociated, um, frenzied attack. Yeah, I agree. Was there any... I don't know, is there any information out there about does, did he really have fetal alcohol syndrome, his IQ, his general... I mean, is there any kind of psychological um, professional witness statement or something about um, his state of mind? Because I really can't stand like drugs and alcohol as being an excuse for these things. Um, and nor, to be honest, as mm. anything, but I would just be curious as to what, I don't mm. know, a psychologist, psychiatrist's view was of him because... Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, like, diminished responsibility is a legal defence, even if it's one that's quite hard to stomach. Mm -hmm. No, so I think definitely reports were done, but I can't really find any. And that, I think, is largely because there has been quite a heavy publication ban on this case, Mm. which means that obviously there isn't a lot of information out there. All that I really could find um, was stuff that he'd said on the stand. So I don't know if this is real, if this is correct. But I mean, this is what he said on the stand. And he said that... Um, He'd been put in an orphanage when he was, I think, four years old. And that after that, he was in and out of foster care. And then as he got older, he was in and out of jail. Um, He'd said that when he was 13, he started selling drugs. And then by the time he was 16, he was selling guns. Um, And he said that he'd been hearing voices in his head since he was 13. And then he also said that when he closes his eyes, he sees the eye of a lizard. um, And he says that that gives him strength. He also on the stand seems quite not remorseful i don't know if that's really the right word i mean he refuses to look at jane the entire time um but 
he did say that he was sorry for what happened and he wished he could be forgiven. So I, mean, I don't really know what you think about all that. I think if that was, you know, his childhood, I guess it isn't really my place to say, do you know what I mean? But I, I don't know if he's making it all up either or if he was suffering from these hallucinations and hearing these voices. And it does obviously sound like he had an awful childhood. Um, I just don't know. Ultimately, for me, that can't excuse what he did or the horrific manner in which he did it. But I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what your views on that are. Um, yeah, I think it's a tough one. I mean, I think um, he does sound absolutely ripe, if you will, to have some kind of mental illness, some, I don't know, combination probably of some personality disorders as well as um, like fetal alcohol syndrome generally does cause some quite severe de- developmental delays and difficulties. So absolutely, mm-hmm. I think he, do- I mean, he. let's face it, he doesn't sound like a person who's completely normally functioning and has all the same emotions and yeah, mental faculties as you as are, as you and I do. So yeah, I think definitely there's probably some stuff going on there. Like you say though, it was a very prolonged attack. Um, it was calculated he obviously had an interest there etc do i think it was just despair of the moment voices in the head no probably not um do i think that yeah he probably is in need of some uh treatment from a doctor quite for what i guess it's really hard to say with any conclusivity Mm -hmm. but yeah absolutely i mean he's got all the yeah all the sort of markers if you will mm. to suggest that he probably would have some issues um but without those reports exactly like you say you're just going off what he said on the stand and i think we've talked about it before there is definitely a huge and i will call it a misconception i think amongst offenders that they might somehow be better off going to some sort of psychiatric yeah. hospital yeah. um which i definitely don't think is the case um even if actually for some of them it possibly is genuinely what they need um, I think a lot mm. of them will get up on a stand and try and insinuate it's what they need just because they think they could fare better there than prison. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it definitely would be interesting to see some more like detailed reports. But either way, he's done a really horrific thing um, and 100% from the sounds of things had plenty of times where he could have woken up and acknowledged what he was doing was horrendous yeah. on the night of mm-hmm. the attack, like to being regretful, remorseful. Five years later, it's not very much good to anyone, is it? No, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, He also, on the stand, um, I don't know if he said it to try and show that he was remorseful or what. I don't know why he said it, but he does just, he does also say on the stand that um, he tried to kill himself twice uh, since the attack and that once he'd attempted to hang himself in his cell, but a guard had stopped him. And reportedly another time he tried to chew through an artery in his finger in order to attempt suicide. Um, So... That's just some more information for you there, but I don't really know why he told the court that. Oh, well. Yes. It's enough to make your stomach flip. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Um, so at the trial, Jane's father and mother also read victim impact statements. Her father's was particularly compelling, and he said, Her death would have been the worst possible nightmare for us, and it was so close. She is with us today only because her attacker was inept with his weapons, not from lack of trying to kill her on his part. I absolutely agree with that. It does really seem like he tried so hard to kill her. Like, it doesn't at all seem kind of like what you just said. Like, it wasn't just like a one-off blitz attack. He tried three times and he tried really, really hard. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think the fact that he kept coming back and when you were Mm -hmm. originally telling me that, I was under the impression that that whole 
the whole event end to end had been maybe half an hour but actually when you said two hours that is just yeah. such a horrific amount of time to and you know, mm. that whole time you, he's got to be thinking he's got to be processing stuff he's making really I know this sounds sort of bizarre but actually that would have been an exhausting length of time for mm-hmm. him to be attacking someone as well so to kind of be almost willing yourself on to keep trying so hard to kill someone yeah yeah to push yourself through that exhaustion level to mm. to do it to go through with it yeah it is, it is i totally agree with that so despite ryan's protest that he couldn't remember anything that had happened that night he was thankfully found guilty of all five charges and was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum jail term of 10 years The prosecution stated that there were many aggravating factors to this crime, but very little mitigating circumstances. And strangely, the defence actually didn't argue against this. Justice Terry Claxon told Jane that he thought that she had shown incredible courage and perseverance, and he said the world is a much better place with her in it. When referencing Ryan, he said, The events described by the victim leave little doubt that the accused was in possession of his faculties sufficiently to understand right from wrong and to appreciate the consequences of his actions. He then went on to say, There is every reason to believe that the accused was intoxicated on the night in question. However, the events described by the victim compel me to the conclusion that the accused intended to end her life. Jane and her family stated that they were very pleased with the sentencing and pleased that the whole ordeal was finally done because they'd had to wait a really long time for justice. Jane also released a statement to the press in which she said, I have learnt in this that the Edmonton community heals the wounded with love, the wagons were circled and everyone who became involved or affected by this story opened their arms with expertise, strength, love and sometimes cookies. Hmm. Because of this reaction, my loved ones and I have not only survived this journey, but we have thrived coming out of the darkness as stronger, wiser and enlightened to the strength of our community. And I think that is a lovely message. Yeah, that's an amazing sentiment and one that, God, I can't imagine recovering from something like that not physically not mentally so for her to come out the other side and actually be able to say something so positive and yes it was what five or six years later but still to have done that much healing really in such a short space of time is just incredible and I think incredible but in some ways probably not unexpected when we think back to like the very start of the story and yeah well the whole of the attack like the strength she showed then I think Mm. I yeah I hoped in that moment that if she survived she'd yeah I don't know become one of those people who finds just a little bit more left inside her to dig deep and not just to survive but to truly truly recover which sounds like yeah as best she could is what she's done Mm-hmm. no I agree and you know like when uh, Christina messaged us with this suggestion she said didn't she you know like we often hear about violence and death but in this instance a woman was met with extreme violence and yet she survived as a result of her own actions and I literally could not say that any better myself I think it's so important to reference cases like this uh, kind of very similar to our third episode on Alison Botha um, like the strength that Jane showed in this case was phenomenal and the fact that when she was faced with the worst thing that could ever happen to her in her whole life she acted calm she built a rapport with her attacker she made assertive efforts to pick out you know like identifying features on him so she could identify him later on she fought so so hard to survive and it is just unbelievably commendable Mm, amazing 
so obviously she did an amazing thing in that she was able to, you know, implement these tactics in order to save her own life. And that statement and stuff that she said earlier, it's obviously lovely, but I have read a lot of articles in which she said that, you know, this has ruined her life. Like she has no alone time. She doesn't, she's not ever alone. If she wants to go anywhere, her friends pick her up. She doesn't run anymore. She doesn't do any of the things that she wanted to do anymore. And I think that it is really, really important to remember that in cases like this. Um, I think obviously, you know, when we reference this kind of same situation in Alison, both those cases as well, um, is that, yes, these people go on to be really strong and do amazing things and, you know, write books and like do seminars and stuff like that and talk to people about, the worst thing that ever happened to them but it has really changed her life in a really negative way and I think it is amazing that she's found the strength in all of that to uh, channel it into something positive but ultimately what this man did to her was the worst thing that you could ever really do to someone and for her to survive she definitely survived based on her own um, strength and courage and bravery but that's not to say that she's now completely fine and she's just gone back to normal because her life will never be normal again and that is something that she has said in reports and statements so I do also think that is important to reference yeah I totally agree I think it's an amazing strength that they're able to kind of like reflect to the outside world but I think every human gets it sort of the moment when actually you are just sort of on your own with your thoughts and for her those thoughts and fears will forever ever be shaped by this attack I think particularly because Mm. happened in her own home in her own bed that's somewhere that you're meant to feel safe and for her it happened yeah not out in a you know dodgy part of town um yeah Mm -hmm. it happened in you know her little corner of the world if you will so yeah I think Mm. it is really yeah, it's a stark reminder, I think, isn't it, that for, yeah, these attacks take place and other people sort of are able, yeah, we're able to read these stories and, and be really moved by them and amazed at how much these women are able to recover, etc. But actually, in their own world, in their own heads, those thoughts will never go away. And yeah, behind yeah, closed doors. Yeah, behind yeah. closed doors, that's the phrase I'm looking for. Yeah, behind closed <laughs> doors, they will some way be forever haunted by these experiences mm-hmm. and god how could you not be and i think yeah what impresses me is that they're able to keep not keep that behind closed doors but for at least parts of the day parts of the month parts of the year they're able to shut it off as best they can and and still mm-hmm. go on to like contribute and do amazing things um because i always mm-hmm. think god if this happened to me i feel like that would just be my whole all i think i would be able to do is feel the fear and the dark days yeah. and stuff like that so yeah I think there's definitely two sides to to any story like this isn't there absolutely and just so commendable mm. really commendable um okay so that's it that is this case done thank you everyone for listening you can find us over on social medias at infraction.thepod and we'll see you next week bye bye